different ways that we could go today to talk about prayer or prayer strategy or prayer guide. And for the last couple months, I've been, as we've been approaching this whole Passover season, it's been on my heart to uh, really study the Feast of Purim to kind of really look at the book of Purim or the book of Esther to understand this feast called Purim. Now as many of you know that on Wednesday the many in the churches will be celebrating what's called Lent. Lent is the 40 days prior to Good Friday where many people in the church do fasting and prayer all as a preparation for Easter. Uh, now, um, now Lent wasn't uh, practiced back in Jesus' days. Many people say that practice started maybe about 300 A.D. or so. But during Jesus' day, when Jesus walked on the earth and when other Jewish people walked on the earth, the 40 days prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, they would have been celebrating the Feast of Purim and followed by the, piece, the Feast of Passover. So I thought this year, why don't we study and participate in these two feasts to help us kind of understand what were the Jewish people thinking 2,000 years ago? What was life like to be a Jewish person 2,000 years ago? And what would Jesus have been doing two months prior to his death and resurrection? Jesus would have been going through the Feast of Purim. So you might be wondering, what does Purim have to do with the Ukraine? So if I was going to summarize the book of Esther in, in one sentence, I would say it is a book about deliverance and miracles. See, in the, book of, in the book of Esther, it appears that all hope is lost for the Jewish people. There's a decree that went out that said the Jewish people would die in about a year. And you're reading through the book of Esther, and you kind of get to this conclusion at one point. You think, why are they even trying? Why are they even fighting? Why don't they just kind of move out of the Persian Empire and find some safety? And to be honest, I think a lot of us have looked at the news and you looked at Ukraine, and you kind of wonder, it seems kind of inevitable that they could be taken over by Russia. Why don't you just leave and get out of there now? And that's why I like the book of Esther, and I think the book of Esther helps us pray because throughout the book of Esther, you see these surprising turns of events and these amazing coincidences and also great reversals that display the awesome sovereign power of God. And that's why I think it's a good book to help us to pray for the Ukraine because it helps us to see that God has a plan when it appears that nothing good is going to come out of this. So the book of Esther is about 10 chapters, and I think it would take probably quite a bit of time if I would read through those 10 chapters. So I'm going to try to summarize it and kind of give you the book of Esther in maybe the next 10 minutes or so. Fortunately, one of my friends, Robert Heidler, did this, and I've listened to him do it, so I got a little help from him, so I got to give him a little credit. But at the heart of the book of Esther is Esther 9, verse 28. This is kind of the summary of what happens in the book of Esther is this annual celebration of the Feast of Purim. And in Esther 9 it says, These days would be remembered and kept from generation to generations and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire. The festival of Purim would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among their descendants. 
Purim is this joyful celebration that Jewish people, and they still practice today, remember how the Jewish people were rescued from Satan's plan of, of, Satan's plan of defeat. So the book is about deliverance. As one of my friends says, deliverance means the oppression is broken, the curse is reversed, and the door to your destiny is open. Deliverance is all about joy, and that's the heart of the book of Esther. So this book of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire. At that time, thousands of years ago, the Persian Empire was considered the greatest empire in all of the world. The, the land stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia, and in that mix was about 127 different provinces. And over all these provinces was one king who was a bit of a partier. He was a bit of a drunkard, but he liked to have a good time, and he liked to throw big, big parties. And he had one rule at his party. You can drink as much as you want. And so he was throwing one of these big parties, and he had all of his friends there. And it was about a few days into the party. I mean, he liked week-long parties. And he was into his party. He was about a few days into the party, and he thought, you know what? I need to have my wife come out. She's so beautiful. Her name is Vashti. And so he ordered through his servants that his wife would come out and kind of do her own little beauty pageant. Kind of the commentary said he was looking for her to do some kind of a show. And so Queen Vashti said, no, I'm not coming out. I'm not doing that. So the king was so angry, so frustrated, she got fired from her job as a queen, and she's taken off stage, and more than likely she was probably killed. So a few days later, the king wakes up, he kind of sobers up a little bit, and he's like, dang, I'm going to miss her. She was really beautiful. Well, he had already had, had her removed, so he sent out this decree throughout his empire that they needed to find him some new beautiful young woman, and maybe potentially one of them could become uh, the next queen. So this wasn't like The Bachelor where people signed up because they wanted to participate. The, his officials would go out through the country and they would find beautiful young women and pull them out of their home by force. And he would take these young beautiful women and they would put them in, in part of the king's harem. And for the next year or so, these women would learn um, how, how to... I don't know, they go through these beauty regimens where they would learn how to be beautiful and dress and talk and act. And then during that time of preparation, there would come a night when one of these young women would be required to go into the king's bedroom to perform for him. And if he appreciated that, she would become the next queen. So at this moment, there is this young woman named Esther. Esther had an uncle, his name was Mordecai. And Esther was a young woman who was an orphan. And fortunately, her uncle Mordecai took her in. And her, husband, her uncle just so happened to be another Jewish man. And he was also in exile like the rest of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And he held a prominent role in the, in the city. He was probably on the city council. So one day, the, the officials come to his house and they just drag Esther out of his house, put her in the harem, and she's gone through a year of preparation. And one night, the king does call her into his bedroom, and the king is so impressed with his, her beauty that he quickly makes her the next queen, puts a crown on her head, and she is the next queen over the Persian Empire. So we have Mordecai emerges, we have the story of Esther emerges, and then there's one other big character in the story, and that is a man by the name of Haman. 
At the same time Esther becomes queen, Haman is, is given the, the role of kind of the prime minister of the, of the Persian Empire. The prime minister is basically the one who does all the work and runs it all, and the king would have to have a good prime minister because most of the time he's drunk and kind of just doing drunken things. So Haman's raised up to be the next prime minister. The problem with Haman is he's pretty arrogant and he's pretty prideful. But one thing that he loves about his job is that everybody's going to bow down to worship him. He gets a big charge out of that. The problem is Mordecai would not bow down to him. When Haman would walk down by Mordecai, Mordecai would not bow down to him. And that made Haman very, very mad. So one day Haman goes home and he figures out, you know what, I'm just going to kill him. But it's not good enough that he just kills Mordecai. He decides, I want to kill every single Jew. So what he does is he takes some dice, and it's called um, casting lots, and he basically rolls the dice, and he comes up with a date to kill them all. And the date was on the Hebrew calendar in the month of Adar, and on our calendar, it would be in the month of March. It would be in the early March. So Haman comes up with his own little plan. He's going to kill all the Jews, but He's going to have to get the king to cooperate with this plan because the king's the only one who could issue a decree. So Haman goes to the king the next day and he makes up this whole story and says to the king, you know what, these Jewish people, they're very rebellious in the kingdom and we need to get rid of all of them because they're not going to submit to the king, so let's get rid of every single one of them. So the king's like, sure, do whatever you want. So he gives his signet ring over to Haman, and Haman makes a decree throughout the land that in about a year's time, every Jew that is in the Persian Empire would be killed or destroyed, and then they would take all of their property over. This edict is sent out to the entire Persian Empire. Now the thing about this decree, it is called an immutable decree, which means nobody can change it. Once that law goes into effect, nobody can change it unless there's a higher authority comes in with a different decree to override this decree. But the king himself could not defeat that own decree he made. So as you can imagine, Mordecai's not too excited when he finds out all the Jewish people are going to be killed. So Mordecai gets a message into his, his niece, the queen, and he says to Esther, he says, you know what, you have to do something. You need to do something to stop the king. And while Esther, she's pretty nervous about it, and so she says, if I go to the king without being called in, he'll kill me. And she's exactly right. It's not like the king and queen had this little husband and wife, we love each other relationship. She was basically a piece of property. And she knew if she would walk into the king and say to him, hey, by the way, I'm a Jew. Could you do something to my Jewish people? She would be killed. So Mordecai got the message back from Esther. He sends another message back to Esther. And this is what he says to Esther. Esther 4, verse 14. It's a very famous verse in the book of Esther. He says, Esther, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. See, Mordecai was a smart man. 
He knew that if Esther didn't rise up to do what God had called her to do, that God would come up with deliverance from the Jews in another way. There was going to be a plan B if Esther didn't do what God called her to do. But if God had to rely on plan B, Esther would probably lose her own life. See, Mordecai was a very smart man. He knew that the final outcome for the Jewish people was not in question. See, Haman did issue a decree of destruction, but Mordecai knew that another decree would be coming from God. Mordecai knew that God had also issued a decree over the Jewish nation. But see, right now, everybody throughout the Persian Empire, all that they are focusing on right now is the decree that Haman has made. Nobody can see the decrees that God has already made. See, that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is all about enforcing the decrees and the commands and the promises that God has made. Because right now what's going on in the Persian Empire is there's a decree going on that says all the Jews will be killed. And then there's another decree that God has declared that says you will not destroy the Jewish nation. God had promised that for the Jewish nation. But Esther has to come in and enforce what God has already said he would do. Listen to the words of Genesis 12, 31. Way before Esther and Haman and Mordecai were on the earth, it says, God says, I will bless those who bless you. He's speaking of the new Jewish nation. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. In Zechariah 28, Zechariah 2, verse 8, he says, he who touches the apple of my eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so, so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. See, in Zechariah, he's saying, you mess with the, is, the Jewish people, it's like poking God in the eyeball. He does not like that. And God will retaliate. See, God had issued already before the foundations of the earth were laid, a plan to protect the Jewish people. So there's two decrees that are fighting right now. One decree made by an evil, rotten king, and another decree by the God of the universe. The final outcome was never in question. The only question is, would Esther do what God had called her to do? Mordecai knew that Esther had a destiny. Remember what he said to her. He said, you have been born for such a time as this. See, if Esther turned back and said, look, I'm too fearful, I'm not going to do that, God would raise up another plant, a person, to enforce his decrees. But Esther might lose her own life. See, in order for Esther to bring deliverance for God's people, God asked her to do one thing. She would have to go before the king. She'd have to tell him she's a Jew and ask God if she, if, and ask the king if he would have mercy on her and, and the other Jews. But Esther was terrified. She's nervous and scared. You don't blame her because she's thinking, I'm going to be for the, go before the king. He'll probably just kill me right away. But Esther knew she had to do it. So Esther said to Mordecai, okay, I'll do it, but we need to do a three-day fast. Help me get in touch with all the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire, and we're going to do a three-day fast, no food and no water. 
And then when it got to the third day of the fast in Esther 4, 16, Esther says, all right, even though I know it's against the law, I will go to the king. If I must die, I must die. That is the resolve of Esther. I will do what the king, the God king has called me to do, no matter what I think the consequences might be. So Esther put on her royal robe. She stood in front of the king's hall, and it just so happened, this is these coincidences all throughout the book of Esther, it just so happened that the king saw her, and he said, Esther, come into my chamber. When he saw Esther, he said, Esther, what is it that you want to request from me? Tell me anything you want. I will even give you up to half my kingdom. But Esther knew it wasn't the right time to ask him. She knew it wasn't the right timing. So she said, you know what? How about a little later on, you and Haman come and I'll prepare a banquet for you. So the time came. She put on a banquet for Haman and for the king. They came into the banquet hall and the king looked at Esther and said, will you tell me now, what is your request? I'll give you even up to half of the empire. Once again, Esther knew it was not time to ask the king. She said, come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow, I'll throw another banquet for you and for Haman, and then at that banquet, I'll tell you exactly what I want. So the king went back to his house, Haman went back to his house. Haman was happy, but he got really mad because he's walking out of the king's palace, and there's Mordecai again. And once again, Mordecai did not bow down to him. So Haman goes mad, he's kicking mad, he goes home, he brags to his wife that he just got invited to a banquet with just the king and the queen, and he gets to go to another one, but he said to his wife, I'm so mad at Mordecai, every time I see him, he doesn't bow down to me. So his wife said, why don't you kill him? So he's thinking, well, that's a pretty good idea, I think I'll kill him. So he builds a gallows in his front yard, gallows, one of those things that you hang a person on. And so he's going to go to work the next day and tell the king, hey, we got to kill this Mordecai. But it just so happened, another one of these surprising turn of events in the story, that the king goes to bed that night, but he can't sleep. And so he can't sleep. So what does he do? He has his servants come in and he says, get out of the shelves, the old history books of the Persian empire and read me some of the history of the empire. That might put you to sleep. I'm surprised he didn't ask for food or another cocktail. But he asked for his servant to read him the history. And they're reading the history, and it just so happened that they got to the page where the king's reminded that a few years ago, Mordecai stopped a plot that two men were planning to kill the king. And the king's reading that and thinking, Mordecai saved my life, and I never thanked him. I never threw him a party. I never showed him any appreciation. So he gets up the next day, and here comes Haman into the office, and, and, Haman, and, and the king says to Haman, you know, what do you think I should do for a man who was never honored? And Haman's thinking, oh, you're going to honor me. You're going to throw me a party. So Haman says, I'll tell you what you should do. 
You should, throw, you should give him a fancy king's robe. You should put a crown on his, on his head. You should put him on a horse and have someone lead him all through the town saying, this is what the king does to honor a person. And the king looked at Haman and said, that's a great idea. I want you to do that exact plan for Mordecai. Nobody saw that one coming. But for Haman, that's not the worst thing that happened that day. Haman had to go to the banquet now with the king and the queen. And he gets to that banquet and the king says to Esther, he says, now will you tell me what your request is? And now Esther knew it was the right time. It was the time to ask the king. So she went before the king and she told him that she was a Jew. And she asked the king to spare her life and the life of all the Jewish people. And so the king says, well, whoever ordered all the killing of the Jews? He had a few too many cocktails that time he announced that. So he's saying, who said you could kill all the Jews? And in Esther 7, verse 6, Esther replied, the wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And suddenly Haman grew pale, the king got up and ran out of the room furious. Haman gets down on the ground. He begs Esther, could you save his life? The king comes back in the room and he orders that a bag be put over Haman's head, which pretty much was declaring the fate of Haman. And they're all standing there. And one of the assistants says, you know what? Haman built a gallow in his front yard last night to kill Mordecai. Why don't you drag him out and put him in the gallows? And they did that. See, what just happened there was a great reversal of events. The destruction that Haman planned for Mordecai happened to him. It was a dramatic reversal of events. And that is what prayer does. It's a reversal of the events that the enemy sets in motion. And so what does the king do after that? After being prompted by Mordecai, he sends, out a new, he sends out a new decree. He can't cancel his old decree, but he sends out a new decree saying, on the day that you are planning to kill all the Jews, they can rise up and defend themselves. Esther 9 verse 1 says it this way. This translation, I like it because it, it gives it, puts it in our calendar, so it kind of makes it a little bit more real. It says, on March 7, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On the day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. See, on that day, here the Persian Empire thought they were going to defeat all the Jews. Everything looked like the Jews were going to be defeated until another decree came and said the Jews could fight for themselves. Again, this is an unexpected reversal of events. This is deliverance. Deliverance happens when a person experiences a reversal of events in their life. A reversal of events is what happens when a curse is broken. The schemes of the enemy against you are reversed. And suddenly, the opposite happens. 
That's what happens when you find Jesus. You find deliverance. That the curse over your life is broken. And you start seeing a reversal of events in your life. And as we follow Jesus, we continue to find deliverance. As we draw closer to Jesus, we all continue to experience a reversal of events in our life. But we're also going to pray today to see a reversal of events that are happening against the Ukraine and Eastern Europe. See, that's the story of Purim. It's a story of deliverance. That through Esther's obedience, a curse or a decree was broken and an unexpected series of events followed it. See, this event of Purim, this event is actually one of the most significant events in the history of the nation of Israel. I mean, let's, let's just say God didn't have a plan B and Esther didn't do what God had called her to do. There would be no more Jewish people. Things would have stopped right there. But God had a plan for Esther. That's why it says, you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's a word for each one of us. We have come into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. God has called each of us to some strategic place in the kingdom of God, just like he called Esther. But you know what? Esther didn't grow up as a little girl thinking, someday I'll probably be queen and see the Jewish people set free. She was a pretty frightened young woman. A lot of commentary said she was probably in her early teens. She was a very young woman. She was an orphan. She was abducted from her home. And she was basically raped by the king. Life wasn't very easy for this young girl. But God had a plan for her life. God had a decree over Esther's life that was more powerful than the decree that Satan had over her life. But so often, we get these decrees confused. So often, we think Satan's decree over us is the truthful one. And we think the decree that God has made over our life is the imaginary one. See, this is the thing. There will always be Hamans in the world. There will always be evil people. Satan always will have people to oppose you. Satan always makes decrees for destruction. But then there's God. God always has a decree and promises for each of our lives. And God's decrees always carry more power, more power than any, any of the enemy's decrees. This is a decree that most of you know that God has made over each of your lives. Jeremiah 29, 11. God decrees, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That is God's decree over each and every one of us. It's a decree to give us a hope and a future. See, the purposes of God are immutable. The purposes of Satan are not immutable. 
The purposes of God cannot change. If you choose to God and you walk in the plan that God has for your life, you will thwart every plan that the enemy has against you. See, the biggest question that we all struggle with is, which decree will you align with? Which decree will you believe? Which promise will you believe? Will you embrace God's plan or will you entertain the enemy's plans? That's why Paul urged Timothy, he said, Timothy, you need to wage war against the enemy with the decrees I made over your life, with the promises I made over your life, with what the word of God says over your life, because you have an enemy that is trying to make you believe that his decrees over your life are more powerful than the decrees I made over your life. That's what's at stake here. That's why I love Purim. That's why I love the book of Esther. That's why I love at the end of Esther, it says to the Jewish people, celebrate this every single year because it is a reminder that God always has a plan when it looks like everything is headed towards destruction. Esther was a book that reminds us that all these little things that look like coincidences is the sovereign power of, sovereign power of God working behind the scenes at all times. Even before Haman had a plan to kill the Jews, God had already put in motion Mordecai to sit at the gates of the city. Even before Haman made the plan to kill the Jews, Esther was already raised up to be the next queen. God is always moving. He's always shifting even before the enemy's plans come to surface. And that's why we can pray with confidence today when we pray for the Ukraine. Why we can pray in confidence when we pray for Russia. Because God has a plan. God has set his decrees out. He's declared his decrees in the word of God. And what we come in as intercessors, and we just pray the decrees and the promises of God, that's all we're doing. We're doing today, and we're saying God's word is more powerful than Vladimir Putin's word. God's plans are more powerful than any weapon formed against us. We come here to decree and declare that the promises of God are yes and amen. So what does this have to do with the Ukraine? See, when you look at the Ukraine right now, it does look a little hopeless. You do wonder and you think, boy, it seems like Russia with one snap of a finger could wipe out the Ukraine and take over Eastern Europe. But it looked the same way for the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. God always has a plan. But God's calling us today to be like an Esther, to stand in the gap and enforce the God's decrees for the people of the Ukraine and over the Eastern Europe. That's what we want to do today. So I ask you to join me in praying. We're going to, again, we're just going to have a mic up here. I ask you to come forward and, and the microphone will be on and you don't have to play with that little button. And if there's a prayer that's on your heart, please come forward and pray. Um, try to keep your mouth like a couple inches from the microphone. Maybe you want to pick it up. Um, there's a prayer guide in the back with some verses to pray. Some of you might be like, oh, I don't know about praying in front of people. Well, then on that guide we gave you, then read a verse. Come up here and read a verse. That would be good. Or just stay in your seat and pray. We want to open this up or there's something you want to share. I want this to be interactive.
You know, there's no rules right now. We are family coming here today to say, God, would you move? Would you move? That's what we're doing here today. So, so um, let's spend some time praying. So, Beck, you want to start? Okay. Well, I'm going to spiritualize a few of the things that I was thinking of while you were sharing that. Um, first of all, I, I read a, a couple of different articles last night on what Putin is doing right now to try to get the Russian people involved in this uh, particular conflict. He's, he's lying to them almost the same way that Haman lied to the king. He is telling them that, uh, that there is great genocide going on by the Ukrainians against the Russians. That's false. He's telling them that there is, um, that, that he wants to denazify them. He's saying that they are, uh, they are coming up like a Nazi force, which is crazy considering that their president is Jewish. But there's just so much going on here that's just lies and lies. And he's trying to stir up the people of Russia to, to, to wage this war with a bunch of lies just like Haman did. So the first thing I'm going to pray is this. Father, we do just pray, Lord, that those lies would begin to fall apart. Even as you expose the lies of Haman, Lord, as you exp and, and that you brought up the truth about Mordecai, and you brought up the truth about Esther, Father, and you brought up the truth of what was truly in his heart, Lord, I'm asking that the lies that Putin is bringing to try to, to, to whip the Russian people into fighting mode against the Ukrainians would fall to the ground. I am asking for a spirit of truth to come over that region. Father, I am asking, Lord, that you would begin to bring just your, uh, your, your Lord, and Lord, I'm also going to ask for angelic forces. And this is something that, that is also very biblical in these wars. One other thing I do want to say to you all, one reason why I feel so compelled to pray about this is because what comes against people with the communism, I loved how Lori put it today, has to do with, with removing identity, has to do with removing ability to think, has to do with removing your personhood to be able to even come before the Lord. And that's what Satan does. That's his whole plan to bring that against people, to, bring, um, to, to, to remove their identity, to cause them to lose their ability to think and even their ability to relate to God. And that's what's trying to come against. That's the spirit that's trying to come against Ukraine right now. That's why I feel fired up. That's why I feel that this is actually a holy war in some way for us. We wage it in the heavenlies, but it's because... That, that's what's trying to happen against the people of Ukraine, and it isn't going to stop with them. If they fall, this is going to, this is, we've all heard. We've all heard, seen what the news stories are saying, but if we start seeing what's happening in the spirit, it's this, it, it, is, it is coming against in the same way. So, Lord, we just say, Father, that we, are, uh, that we are here to do war in the heavenlies on behalf, Father, of the Ukrainian people. Lord, we believe that you have freedom for them, just as you have freedom for us. Father, we thank you that, that back then in 1991 that they stood up and they said we will be a free people, free not only in our thinking, but free to worship our God as well. And so, Father, Lord, I just ask that, 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 that we would see that our eyes would be open to what the real battle is over in Jesus' name. Amen.